Amen. If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. just want to hone in on something that Scott Kennedy said um, as he was reading or before he read Psalm 72. Is that, I don't know about you, but it's incredible to me how just reflecting on the God who is just uh, brings me profound peace in my life. Um, because I know just living or just, uh, just posture of my heart um, often escapes me. And what a joy it is to come into worship and to read Psalm 72 and to hear of God's justice, his profound justice in the world. Philippians chapter 4. Um, for those of us, uh, just as a reminder, we've been uh, looking at uh, Psalm 4, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 4 now for the past uh, several weeks, and we've been taking each one of these um, adjectives, uh, whatsoever is true and honorable, and we've, we've looked at what they mean in light of our lives, uh, in helping us think biblically. Uh, to help us examine our thought life. And so we're going to do that until the end of June when we pick up another series on, as we continue looking at uh, what it means to be spiritually mature, we're going to look at the book of Jonah, an example of someone who is supposed to be spiritually mature, but then manifest extreme spiritual immaturity. So <clears throat> with that, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 as we tackle the word just today. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. And let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, um, indeed, be with us here today. What a glorious thought as we can ponder and think about your just and your just, the fact that you are just and your justice is seen throughout all the world. Holy Spirit, come now. Um, this is your word, these are your people. And I pray that the truth of your word may be impressed upon our hearts, that we might find comfort and hope and joy, but yet even now live in this world that you've given us. And so bless us now in Jesus' precious, holy, wonderful name. Amen and amen. From the very beginning of this series, I've mentioned to you or I've told you that as we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, we're not looking at simply God telling us how to think. But what we're doing is reminding ourselves about how God has designed us to think. In other words, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, is not simply a list that we can look at and say, okay, this is how we should think. 
God has given us a snapshot about how you and I are designed to think, the way in which we are designed to think. That's what's happening here. In other words, God is telling each and every one of us, you've been made in my image. You've been made in my likeness. And a part of being made in God's image and in his likeness is that you and I are designed to think this way and to live this out. This, This is a part of who we are. And the reason why I press that point is because if you look at it, animals don't think like this. Animals don't act in accordance with this. I have two dogs. And my two dogs have never sat down and contemplated the deeper things in life. Why? Because dogs are made only with base instincts. When, when I see my dogs in the morning, they want food, they want water, they want to be let out to relieve themselves. Uh, they bark at everything that passes, which is incredibly annoying, and I apologize to the one neighbor I have just off to my left, right? That's what dogs do. They don't do anything else. They only do what is in accordance with their base nature. But can I tell you today that what this passage does is this passage reminds us that we are made for a higher purpose and a higher nature. And so when we read that whatsoever things are true and whatsoever things are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, if there's uh, anything worthy of excellence, think on these things. What we are having or what we're getting a window of is what God has designed you to be. And that is a powerful reality and a reality that Paul wants us to see. Now, last week, we dealt with the word honorable. And we said that honorable has the idea of awe, to be in awe, to look at God's creation, to look at everything around us, and to be in complete awe of that. And how awe is so necessary to our being. Why? Because awe enables us to worship. The very essence of worship is to be in awe of who God is and what God has created. And so today, we're going to look at the next word in this list, and that's the word just. What does it mean to be just? Now, Paul here, when he uses the word just, is not talking about necessarily the law or, or what is right. What Paul is talking about here when he talks about just is what is the right thing to do? How should you and I act in light of the law? How do we apply God's good and holy commandments in our life? That's what he means by just. And here's the thing. What it means to be just is important because what it means to be just is central to our being. We've mentioned this before, but this is so true. What it means to be just is completely central to our being. If you... If you go on YouTube, and I think I've mentioned this before, one of the most popular courses, college courses on YouTube, is a, call, is a course called Justice. It's taught by Michael Sandel. He's a Harvard professor. And in the course, he talks about all sorts of things. He talks about politics. He talks about legalization of marijuana or gay marriage. I mean, he goes, he runs the gamut in this course. And it's the most watched course on YouTube. 
Millions of people have watched it. It's been translated in many different languages. He's gone over to different countries and taught it multiple times. And if you look at it, right, why is it so popular? Why, why is it that this course has captured the heart and the minds of so many people across so many different nations and so many genres? The reason is, is because Michael Sandel is obsessed with the whole concept of what is the right thing to do. What is the right thing to do? What is the just thing to do? And you know what? We are obsessed with that as well. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, everyone is obsessed with what it means to be just. Here are two examples. If you're a parent, what do you spend a bulk of your time doing with your children? Teaching them what is the right thing to do, right? You spend the majority of your time telling them what is the right thing to do. You tell them, don't yell at your sister and brother. Treat each other with kindness. You tell them, don't tie ropes around your house so you can trip other people with them. Because that's the wrong thing to do. Now, that's oddly specific, but that's the life I live, <laughs> right? But, but what do you spend time doing? You spend time teaching them how to be just. What is the right thing to do? Look at the laws that we pass in our country. The majority of those laws are designed to encourage right behavior, just behavior. Why is that? Because justice, doing what's right, is core and central to who we are. It's core and central to who you are. Everyone is obsessed with doing the just or the right thing. Now, when Paul uses the term just in this passage, Paul knows full well that this term is loaded with all sorts of terms and understandings that could be completely misunderstood by its readers. Even the people that he's writing this letter to. Paul knows that. Now, Paul here knows for a fact that when people read the word just, immediately they're going to think to themselves that this is a matter of simply obeying the law or doing what is right. In fact, the majority of people who Paul is writing this to, when they hear the word just, immediately they start saying to themselves, well, wait a minute, I do the right thing. I, I go to work and provide for my family, all right? I, I keep all the rules. I keep all the laws. I do all the things that I'm supposed to, so therefore I'm just, right? Now, there are some of us inside here today, we're rule followers. We love to know the rules, and we love to follow the rules. We love to obey and do the things that we want to do because that's what being just is. And can I tell you, that's not just some of us. Deep down, that's the majority of us. The majority of us equate being just, being right before the Lord by doing good things or by doing the things that we are supposed to do. One excellent example of this is the story of the rich young ruler. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels about this principle of how we think about being just and just living. In the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what must I do to be saved? Now pause for a moment. If you are just, if you are truly just and you believe that you're truly just, why would you come to Jesus and ask, what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a telltale sign that he wasn't as just as he, think, as he thought he was. So Jesus plays along. Jesus says, okay, if you believe that you're just, if you believe that you're doing the right thing, if you believe that you're moral, 
then sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And what happens as a result of him being exposed? Immediately, the Bible says that he, he began to get sad and he walked away sad. Now, pause for a moment and consider what's happening in that moment. He lived in a culture where being just was doing the right thing and he did all the right things. He obeyed the law, he took care of his family, he provided for others, right? He, he went to the synagogue, he read all the stories, he was kind and nice to his neighbors. He did everything right in accordance with his society and all the things that were around him. And let me tell you that this type of thinking is pervasive in all of the world, not just his day, but in our day. We equate being just with simply doing the right things and being the right kind of person that does the right things. And what's interesting to me is even at the end of the story of the rich young ruler, after Jesus exposes him, what does his disciples say? Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Why did his disciples say who then can be saved? Because they were infected by the same type of thinking. That wait a minute, all we have to do is do the right thing, say the right thing, and we'll be okay. You realize that that type of thinking is at the bottom of all of our hearts. When we read the word just, we immediately start going down a checklist in our mind. Look at all the good things that I do. Look at all the right things that I do. But can I tell you that being, that's not what Paul means by being just. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to point out to you the danger of thinking that just simply means doing the right things. There's an incredible danger to this. And it's the danger, or it's the very thing that happened to the rich young ruler, actually. Why did he walk away sad? Why did he walk away distraught? Literally, the word meaning sad means distraught. It, it's almost like his entire life fell apart when Jesus told him that all of the good that he was doing was pointless. Here's two reasons why um, just thinking that justice means being good is so dangerous to us. The first is this. At least incredible bondage. And the first reason is this. How do you know you've done enough? For, for all the rule followers, and I'm, I'm one of them too, right? I love the idea of thinking I've done enough. I've done all the things that I'm supposed to. I've taken care of my family. I've loved my wife. I've loved my children. I love that checklist in my mind that I've done all the right things. But if truth be known, how do you know you've done enough? If your standard of being just, if your standard of being right before God is that you go through a moral checklist of all the things you've done right, and your standing before God is based on all the things you've done right, even though you're a Christian, if you still base your standard of justice on all the things you do right, you are going to come to a place in your life one day where you legitimately ask the question, have you done enough? This is what Jesus exposed in the heart of the rich young ruler. Have you done enough? Most of you, um, uh, some of you have uh, probably watched the movie Schindler's List. How many of you have watched Schindler's List? It's a fantastic movie. And, and I became for a time obsessed with the life of Oscar Schindler. And I would read about his life. He's a fascinating man, right? And Oscar Schindler, for all intents and purposes, was a heathen, right? I mean, he, he was a womanizer, he drank, he lived this 
this outlandish lifestyle. But, but, despite his personal life, as most of you that have watched the movie know that God used Oscar Schindler in a powerful way where he used all of his wealth and all of his money and all of his status to protect and save over a thousand Jews. Incredible life and incredible history. Now, those of you that have watched the movie know how the movie ends. Actually, it's toward the end. When Oscar Schindler um, has all the people around him, and he looks at them, and immediately what happens? He starts to cry. He starts to panic. And why does he start to cry and panic? Because he realized that he could have, sell, uh, he could have sold a pin that he had to save one or two more people. He could have, a car that he had, he could have sold that to save one or two more people. He kept crying and saying, I could have done more. There's more I could have done. And he became so distraught that he broke down and they, and they began to hold him and they began to assure him, no, you did all that you can. Hear me today. If you are depending on your works, the fact that you've done good things to have a standing of, of just and being just, you will come to a place in your life where you realize you have not done enough. And Oscar Schindler came to that place in his life where he, even though he did all of these incredible things, even though he did all of these wonderful things, he came to a point in his life where he realized it was not enough. The same place that the rich young ruler came to where he realized that all of the works that he did in this life was not enough. It will never be enough. You can never do enough. Let that sink in for a moment, because you know what? The bent of our heart when we think about justice and being just is that all we need to do is, is works, good works, and then we're okay. But that's not just. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Now, there's a second character of our hearts, and it's this. You will come to a place where you realize time and time again, not only can you not do enough, you're simply not good enough. You're simply not good enough. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 18. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. What is Paul saying here in Romans chapter 7, verse number 18? Paul is saying that he has come to the place in his life where he realized that he simply isn't good enough. That no amount of good that he does can merit, in fact, what he's saying in essence is this, that he realizes that even though he wants to do that which is good, he simply doesn't lack the ability to carry it out in a way that truly brings honor and glory to God. And let me tell you, that's exactly, that explains exactly the rich young ruler. That explains exactly Oscar Schindler. And on most days, that explains exactly us. You and I are acutely aware, acutely aware, that we are not good enough to accomplish the good that we desire. And that we fail miserably. We fail absolutely, positively, miserably. Now, that's the problem. That's the misunderstanding with just. The misunderstanding that most people, as they come to this term, even people in Paul's day, when they read the word just, they're thinking, 
Okay, that means doing good things and being good, but it does not. Because you and I cannot do enough good things, and you and I are not good enough to do it. So the question is, what is the answer? What is the answer? Because Paul says here that not only are we called to be just, if you look at verse number 9, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul is saying here is that all things that are true and honorable and just are things that we are called to learn and to receive and have seen in him and practice. We're called to practice this. But if we're called to practice this, and we are not able to do it, right, because of our own sinfulness, and we don't possess the will to do it, how do we end up being just? How do we end up pleasing God? Well, the answer to that question is found in how Paul begins and ends the book of Philippians. First of all, flip forward, if you flip forward and look at Philippians chapter 1, verse number 2. Notice what Paul says here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, flip back over to the end of the letter in Philippians chapter 4, beginning uh, at, at, at verse number 23. Paul says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul begins the letter with grace, and he ends the letter with grace. Why does Paul begin and end the letter with grace in this manner? Because grace is the context by which you and I live the Christian life. By the way, if you are looking for a Bible study, study how Paul begins and ends his letter. In fact, every letter that Paul writes, he begins with grace. Not because it's some greeting, but because he realizes or he's trying to tell us as God's people that our life is lived under the context of grace. If you believe being just is all the matter of law, keeping the law, doing the right thing, then you will crash and burn because you will realize you cannot do enough good. And not only that, you're not good enough to do all the good you want to do. But Paul puts um, everything he says in Philippians, in fact, everything he says in his letter under the banner of grace. Under the banner of grace. And he doesn't do it simply as a greeting or as a fancy way to end his letter. He's reminding us of what has been given to us and what has been shown to us as God's people. We've been shown profound grace. And what does grace do? Think with me for a moment. What does grace do? How does grace help us to, get, uh, to be just? By undoing all of the natural assumptions of our hearts of our sinful hearts. First, I'll write down two things. At least I wrote down two things. Here is how grace helps us to be just. First of all, grace reminds us that we don't need to do enough because all the work has been done for us. That's what grace does. You don't need to strive to be good because all the work has been done for us. But the second thing that grace does is grace reminds us who um, we are in Jesus Christ, that we've been made just. Think about those two things in light of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Most of us have memorized this passage. For those of you that haven't, I highly recommend it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the verse doesn't stop there. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Consider what Paul is saying here and what grace does. First of all, grace reminds us that all the work has been done for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. None of that is your own doing. The grace of God that's been poured out on you and I is a work that has been done by Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? That means that when you live your Christian life, you live your Christian life in light of the grace that has been given to you. Dan Orthland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, said it like this. We don't work for the heart of God. We work from the heart of God. That's what it means to work in grace. When you work in grace, you're not doing, or you're not performing the works, just works, doing good things to get God's pleasure or to get your own righteousness. You're you're not doing it for the heart of God. You're doing the work from the heart of God, from the fact that you have been saved, and it's by grace. That's what Paul is saying when he uses the term just. That because we've been saved by grace, we are literally God's workmanship. The, The word there for workmanship is those that have been fashioned and made. Now think about this for a moment. If you have been saved by grace, then the workmanship that Paul is talking about in that passage means that you are fashioned as an instrument of grace. Pause for a moment and notice notice that reality. Because you were the objects of God's grace, because you've been saved, now you become instruments of God's grace to the world. Right? Because you've been saved by God's grace, he has made you, he's created you and fashioned you to be instruments of his grace in the world. Jesus says that much in in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you are the light of the world. In other words, you've been fashioned in such a way to be a means of grace to everyone in the world. That when people look at you, you are supposed to be an example of grace to everyone everywhere. And it's a powerful reality. Beloved, do you know or do you understand your role as a believer is to be an instrument of God's grace? That's what it means to be just. To be just is to be an instrument of God's grace in the world. To bring God glory through your actions, your just and right actions. Now, in Philippians chapter 4, we see this being played out quite profoundly in, the, in what Paul has written here in Philippians chapter 4. This being instruments of grace in the world. I'll just point out a few. First of all, notice in verse 2 and 3. Paul says we're in the instruments of God's grace by the fact that we forgive others or we practice reconciliation. In verse number two, he says, I entreat Judea uh, uh, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Why is it so important for us to seek reconciliation? Because reconciliation points to Christ. It points to the work of grace that has been done toward us, and so we do it towards other people, forgiving one another. 
and doing it quickly and pursuing it in a powerful way. Look, in, in Paul's day, this, this to me is actually very incredible. In Paul's day, the whole concept of reconciliation and justice was not ubiquitous. It wasn't known by everyone. In fact, uh, their society was marked by vendetta. If you didn't like someone, you avoided them like the plague. If you were at odds with someone, you found a way to get even. If you were at odds with someone, you would slander them. You would try and, and ruin their reputation. But Paul here is encouraging these two women to agree in the Lord. Why? Because they are instruments of grace. Nothing destroys the gospel more than when people see Christians who are at odds at one another. Nothing destroys the gospel more than that. That's why we as God's people need to be instruments of God's grace by showing reconciliation, by forgiving one another. But notice the second thing. One of the ways we become instruments of God's race and, uh, uh, grace and justice. Look at verse number five when Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What's Paul saying there? The whole concept of reasonableness is this concept of gentleness. That Christians need to be gentle. That, in other words, the opposite of being reasonable or gentleness is inflamed passions. In other words, Christians shouldn't have inflamed passions. We shouldn't be people who get easily angered. We shouldn't be people who strive to fight and to win at all costs. That's antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to what it means to be a person of grace. Um, I've mentioned this before uh, to Albert. W one of the most shameful things for me as a minister of the gospel is to go on the internet and see how fellow pastors in the Presbytery and in um, our denomination, how they argue and fight with people who disagree with them. It's shameful. And, and these are people that when, they're, when their congregants go online and they see this action from them, what do you think they're learning? By the way, what do you think people in our homes learn when they see us argue and fight and our passions inflamed? What do we teach each other when we have this disposition? It's antithetical to what it means to be just, to be instruments of God's grace. We're called to be people who are reasonable. The idea there is gentle. The aisle there is people who, yes, they might have honest disagreements, but they know how to address those. Notice the third thing that Paul says here is that to be instruments of God's grace is to show profound generosity. In verse number 10, Paul talks about how uh, the church at Philippi revived their concern for him. That the people of Philippi, uh, in verse number 14, they were kind to him. That, that above all the other churches, they entered into partnership with him. One of the ways that you and I demonstrate our, the, the grace of God that's been given to us is by showing profound generosity. It's by giving. Now, let me say this publicly. I was so impressed with our, with our church at the way we came around the vines and served them. I was so impressed because that is an example of profound generosity. And that is the kind of thing that we as a people need to encourage. Encourage one another to be more generous. Encourage one another to go out of our way and to help those around us. 
Not because they deserve it, but because that's what the gospel commands. That's what it means to be gracious. But notice something else in this passage, and I don't have the time to focus on this. But one of the examples, I think, that Paul is talking about of what it means to be instrument of grace is mentioned in verse number 11, and it's, that, it's this concept of being content. You know, we are the most discontented people in the world. We are. We're not content with our job. We're not content of where we are in life. We're always looking for something else. We're always looking for something else to do, or we're always pointing our hearts in a different direction. What are we doing? That's not, that's not being instruments of God's grace. We're so discontented about every area of our life. Have you ever thought for a moment that one of the things that God is calling you to do is simply just to be content with where you are and the place that he has you in life? That's being an instrument of grace to other people. Nothing destroys the work of grace in our heart more than being discontented. And that's the posture so many times of our heart. Now, what's the big takeaway as I wrap up? Here's the simple and big takeaway. Being just isn't simply a matter of law keeping. It means being the instruments of grace in the world. It's not a matter of simply doing the right things, but it's reflecting the profound level of grace that's been given to you. Beloved, consider this verse, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ponder that verse for a moment. One of the things that gets me about this verse is this phrase, while we were still sinners. While we were still alienated from God, God's profound grace was given to us. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. It was unasked for. We need to be that same instrument of grace in the world. So often, Christians are so ungracious toward one another. You know, somebody says something to you that's unkind, and immediately your passion's inflamed as if you can't give another brother and sister uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, this whole thing about COVID-19, one of the things that surprised me is that even within the church, and I'm not so much talking about here, but in the church rich, writ large, how ungracious people were to one another, even within their own church. Beloved, don't you understand? We are instruments of grace. The world looks at us and has a picture of the grace that's been given to us. And so many times we dim the potency of that grace by our own actions. But look to Jesus, who even though you weren't deserving of grace, he did the just thing. By the way, the just thing would be for all of us to have been punished because we were sinners. But Christ went a step further and he did the gracious thing. He came and died so that you and I might have everlasting life. Grace takes it up a notch. It takes it up a notch. It reminds us that you and I are instruments of God's wealth of grace to the world. That's how you should live your life. Loving people, giving people the benefit of the doubt, forgiving quickly, learning to be generous and kind to one another. That's what it means to be just. 
That's the calling that's on all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, in this manner of being just, help us to see that we're called to be people who reflect your just, justness in the world. Lord, so often we think doing just things or doing the right things or doing the big things. But that's simply not the case. Being just means that, you, that we are instruments of your grace. First of all, personally, the people around us, but also we're instrument of grace to the world, that we reflect that grace. Oh, Father, please help us to do that. Lord, we need you. We need grace to be gracious. And I pray that that might be true of this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.